Okay. If you would, turn to Galatians chapter 4. We'll pick up where we left off five weeks ago. Galatians 4, I'll be reading verses 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Blessed be the reading of God's holy, inspired, eternal Word through the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Father, give me the power of Your grace as a teacher to unfold Paul's intended meaning in this complex and strange passage and give us all here minds that are active to hear what your word says hearts that are hungry to love what we see in it and rejoice in Christ the only Savior who makes us free to the glory of his name Amen Christianity, the gospel of Jesus, is the only hope for an eternity of happy tomorrows. It is the only hope to be delivered from the judgment that is to come. 
Oh, what a day, as we have seen the last few weeks, that we look forward to in the resurrection, in the glorified body. That's the core of it. But now let me say this, because the passage does. Those of us who are in here and who have come to faith in Jesus, that's our future. But now, in this life, with pain, with suffering, with crying, with heartache, and everything else, Paul says there's something about this Christian life. And it is freedom. That's what this passage is about. Christianity is about freedom now. It is not about a system of external rules without an internal love for the Father who gives us those rules. That's the freedom. It is at its core freedom even as sinners now. Freedom by the Spirit to love God. It's freedom from the dead heart that we were all born into this world with. The dead heart that was not yet made alive, but as Paul says in Ephesians 2, God, by His grace, has made us alive together with Christ. And thus, to live in that Freedom. It is freedom from our natural disposition to exchange the glory of God for anything else. For the creature. For substitutes. For immorality. It is the freedom that says He is glorious and He has shined the light of the Gospel upon my heart. To whom else shall I go to guide my life, Lord Jesus. Or, if the bondage of sin had not led you into following after the sinful dictates of the flesh in a worldly sense, it may have led you into the bondage of sinful religiosity. Legalism. Christianity is freedom from the bondage of rules that one tries to obey in order to attain right standing with God. Christianity is freedom that comes from the reality of justification by faith alone. It is freedom to live our lives and walk with God as His children because Christ has set us free. Christianity is freedom to love God's moral commands. Freedom to refuse to submit to the slavery of doing religious functions in order that maybe by them I might attain salvation. And that right there is exactly Paul's point in this passage and throughout the whole letter to the Galatians. So, if you're there, let's turn. Chapter 4 of Galatians, start with verse 21, Paul writes, Tell me, 
You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So, to the Galatians, these numerous churches throughout all these Galatian, this Galatian province and territory in these cities, the Galatians who are being tempted by the false teaching of these professing Christians coming from Jerusalem, the Judaizers, they're being tempted to turn and become a Jew in order to be saved, to come under the law as a way to earn God's favor. He says to them, listen to what the law says. First five books of Moses. And that's where he's going to go. The first book. Genesis. Paul never abandoned the intended meaning of the law of Moses. Paul said, in fact, the law is holy and it's righteous and it's good. In Romans 7. But as Paul has been unfolding and making clear throughout the letter to the Galatians, the law cannot save you. The law can only condemn you, put you under the just and righteous curse of God. The curse of the law. And that's what Paul has been saying up to this point. Look back for a moment to verse 23 of chapter 3. Where Paul said, Now before faith came, before we came alive to faith, to trust in God through Jesus Christ, before faith came, we, now he means Jews here, we were held captive, imprisoned, under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law comes to Jews are just our example for all of us who are Gentiles. We are born in sin and we, we dislike God at the core who, for who He really is. And the law comes and we respond by saying, Bleh! or, okay, I'll do your law. And I'll have something to boast about. And it misses the entire purpose of God's commandments. Paul has said that's what sin does. It entraps the sinner and imprisons the sinner. It doesn't save. But in chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, he just said, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It is only the Savior who can save. The law never could. It reveals sin and imprisons us. And so, Paul says, now in our text, embedded in the first five books, Moses, the law, Embedded in those books was the teaching of freedom versus the bondage of sin under the law. And so Paul lays out, now in our text, if you look down at it, first he lays out the historical facts as he's going to summarize them in Genesis. He does that in verses 22 and 23. 
And then he will proceed to interpret those facts in verses 24 to 27. So let's look at verses 22 and 23, the facts he lays out. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So, just a little background. In Genesis 15, we find that Abraham and his wife Sarah have no children, they have no son, they have no heir to inherit the promise that God gave to Abraham. Go to where I tell you to go, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation through your descendants. And here we go, years later in chapter 15, he has no descendants to be the heir of that promise. And so in chapter 15, Abraham says to God, I have no heir. All I have is my slave here, Eliezer. He's going to be the heir. That's the way it works. And God responds to Abraham, No, but through your body, a physical descendant, I'm going to give you a son who will be the heir. God's intention at this point in Genesis is clear that He wants it, as His wife has been barren since a teenager, and now she's old, and Abraham's older and older, God wants to make sure, humanly, this is impossible. Trust my promise. So that Abraham would have nowhere to go but to bank on the promise of God and trust Him. And Abraham did have faith, and he was justified for it. But you go to the next chapter, 16, and it kicks off like this. Now, Sarai, that's Sarah, and Abram's, who was Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarah. So now what we have is Abraham and Sarah weakening in their faith. They had a plan to help God out. They relied here on their own works. They relied here on their own resources. Let's make this happen. Let's bring the promise about. And thus, through Agar, was produced Ishmael. And so, 
When Paul says now in our text, in verse 23, that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, Paul means he was the result of Abraham's lack of faith in God's promises. He was the result of Abraham's own work of self-reliance. You're going to have to see what Paul's doing here with his term, with the Judaizers teaching, works of the law. That's how you inherit. Paul's going to say, Ishmael didn't inherit. It's not how you do it. Okay, then in Genesis, next chapter, chapter 16, 14 years after that horrific debacle of Hagar producing Ishmael, so Ishmael's a teenager now, God says, God's very patient, (laughs) test our patience. Years later, okay, no, Sarah is going to give birth to a son by you, Abraham, in order to fulfill my promise in a way that will remove all human boasting. In essence, think about it. There's Ishmael. That's Abraham's son. God is making it clear. Anything you come up with, Abraham, on your own initiative, with your own ingenuity, your own works, I will nullify. And the same goes for these professing Christian Jews coming behind Paul to the churches of Galatia. It's a false gospel. They're trying to get you to rely on your works of the law as you add that to your faith in Jesus. And I, God, will nullify it. So there in chapter 17, Sarah's going to have the kid. I pick up in verse 17 of Genesis 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, that's a laugh of faith here. Abraham's like, I trust God. That's amazing. He's going to do this. Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? See, Abraham loves his son Ishmael. He said, please, to him, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God clearly rejected what Abraham produced on his own. And he promised a son by a miracle through Sarah. In chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah through Abraham as He had promised. So Paul's point is that Isaac was not born according to the flesh, but he was born according to the promise. Meaning, Isaac's birth, as opposed to Ishmael's, was a result of God's supernatural intervention. 
And Abraham learned the lesson. The only acceptable response to God's merciful promise is faith. Is trusting Him to bring about the promise. Not your own works of the flesh. That's Paul's term for sinful motivation. Not by your own works of the flesh which try to bring God's blessings by its own self-reliant human effort. That's, That's what Paul sees in Genesis. And so, back to Galatians. In verse 23, he summarizes the story this way. The son, that is Ishmael, of the slave, Hagar, was born according to the flesh. While the son, Isaac, was born of the free woman, he was born through, not not the flesh, through the promise God made. You with me? So Paul lays out the facts. Now, he turns in verse 24. He says, I'm going to interpret this and apply it against the Judaizers and to the Galatians. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted, Genesis narrative, allegorically. Okay, we've got to stop. Because this is strange. Paul doesn't do this kind of thing. Anywhere else. This is a little bizarre, so what's he doing? An allegory, it means an interpretation of one thing here in the terms of another thing. Paul's message that we have been reading throughout Galatians, that he's telling the Galatians about justification by faith alone, faith alone that receives the promise. It's by Christ alone, not by your doing anything. There's his message here. That's the one thing. And he now delivers that message allegorically by using the terms of another thing, the Genesis narrative. Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac. Okay? See, when one is allegorizing something, it is, it's valid if what they're using as an allegory is actually the intended meaning, like in a narrative, a story that was always there. You're not reading something else into the story that you could not draw out of a clear reading of the story. It was a, in other words... Paul would have a valid allegory if the way he allegorizes it, that we'll see, was actually, yes, those are the implications of the narrative in Genesis. You follow me? So, for instance, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory, written in the 1600s. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's been around a long time for a reason. And why is that valid? I think it's valid because as Bunyan uses all the differing kinds of terms, here's Christian. Oh, this guy's name, evangelist. This person's name, faithful. Here's 
Doubting Castle. Okay. Uh, there's this, what's the dungeon where he, they get snot beat out of them, etc. Here is worldly wise man. Okay. What he does is he uses this allegory to say this is the Christian life. The reason I think it's valid is because he's saying through the allegory, this is what the Christian life is as one comes to faith. Boom. And then as they walk through until they die and meet the Lord, I think he nails the Bible narrative. Therefore, it's a valid allegory. Making any sense? Okay. All right. One of the greatest minds in history, St. Augustine, back in the late 300s, early 400s, there was a tendency with some of these early church fathers, Origen before him was, did it, and he was horrific at it, and that is they would allegorize passages that are utterly invalid. So for instance, this is what Augustine did, and, and, and you can read this, some of you have the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stuart, and it's, it's laid out in there. And so here's Augustine about the Good Samaritan. You know, Jesus told a parable, not an allegory. He told a story to, to answer the question, who's my neighbor? Drive home a point. And Augustine, for instance, then sees it and he says, Oh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's Adam. Oh, Jerusalem, that's the heavenly city of peace from which Adam fell. Jericho, the moon, and thereby it signifies Adam's mortality. The robbers beat him. That's the devil and his angels. They stripped him. That means they stripped him of his immortality. They beat him. That means by persuading him to sin. That's Adam, right? Okay. The, uh, leaving him half dead. Oh, that means... As a man, he lives, but he died spiritually. Therefore, he's half dead. Okay. And Augustine goes on and on. It's a utterly invalid. Because in the parable, Jesus wasn't trying to communicate any of that. Okay, are you following me? Invalid allegory. Has nothing to do with the text. Okay, so must be careful. So here, Paul makes it very. And this is where we get our word allegory from the Greek word there, which almost translates uh, in its as allegory. Okay, Paul's is valid if his interpretation of the narrative, Sarah, Hagar. Isaac Ishmael narrative. If that is what is implied in Genesis. In other words, so I think Paul is utterly valid that he's spot on because the Genesis story is an exact representation of the theology he is trying to get over to the Galatians and the theology he's coming against that the Judaizers are trying to push upon the Galatians. Does that make sense a little bit? Okay, let me say, okay, one more thing. So, if you asked Paul, 
Paul would never say. The original meaning of the Genesis narrative had reference to Mount Sinai. Or to the present Jerusalem in the first century A.D. He would, no, I'm not saying that at all. That's why he says to us, I'm going to interpret this allegorically. So there's no hidden meaning in Genesis. Oh, that means Sinai. It's not what Paul's saying. He's saying what happened at Sinai is the same truth we saw what happened with Hagar. Okay? What the heavenly Jerusalem is, the one above, is what we saw about the promise with Sarah. Anybody, okay, totally lost? Because that's, that's, you're lost. I'm sorry. We'll talk about it later because I'm going to move on. Ask the questions in later. Okay. All right, so let's go at it. Verse 24. Now this... <laughs> Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Here he goes. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. That would be the Mosaic covenant. Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Okay, let's pause there for a minute. So... What's Paul getting at? How are Hagar and Ishmael, and that whole debacle, how is that like Mount Sinai, where God gave the law? How is the sin, the blunder of the Hagar incident, like what happened when God gave His law through Moses, on Mount Sinai. And then, how that's like Jerusalem in A.D. 53. Because that's where he's going to bring it. Okay, I think there's at least two ways that are clear. First, Hagar's giving birth, Paul makes it clear, here's his theology, it was according to the flesh. He says in verse 23. And in context, that means that Ishmael through Hagar was not a result of God's promise. It was, he was not born according to the promise. That is, it was not a result of trusting God's promise, but it was self-reliant. And that is exactly what happened in the giving of the law to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Moses gives the law there in the, on the peninsula for 40 years. Okay. Remember, first the people say in Exodus 23, I mean 24.3, all the words which the Lord has spoken on Mount Sinai, Moses, we will do. But they didn't. And they didn't have hearts inclined to love God and to trust God as a whole. In fact, in the law, Moses 
a number of times makes it very clear by the Holy Spirit, God has not given you a heart to be inclined to obey. He has not given you ears to hear. He has not circumcised your heart that you would believe in Me. And therefore, they responded according to the flesh. And later, in the history of Israel, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both make it very clear that's exactly what happened. A new covenant I will give to you, God says. Not like the old covenant that I gave to you through Moses, which you broke. But the new covenant is and circumcise your hearts. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to write my law, not externally. I'm going to put it in your hearts. Or in the New Testament, the Hebrew writer, listen very carefully to how the Holy Spirit says it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. For we Christians have had good news. That's the Gospel. We have had good news preached to us just as they also. The context is clear. Those Israelites under Moses in the wilderness beneath Mount Sinai. We have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not benefit them. Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They only responded according to the flesh. And so, like the Hagar-Abraham episode, they depended on their own dead hearts, resources. Abraham... Hagar produced Ishmael. They did not produce an heir. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, for the law, there's nothing wrong with the law in and of itself for what it was. He says the problem with the law hitting us is that the law was weakened by the flesh, our sinful nature. So Hagar, Abraham produced no heir. The law of God comes, meets with Israel and Sinai, and it produces no heir. That's Paul's first point. That's why Hagar is Mount Sinai. You see it yet? I mean, I don't. That's what I understand Paul to be saying. Secondly, then. Also, both Hagar and Mount Sinai, God's law coming to Israel, both of them bear children, descendants, for slavery. See it? Verse 24. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. 
in Arabia. Mount Sinai, giving of the law, bears children for slavery because that is mainly what the law of Moses did to the people of Israel. And if you've been flowing with us through Galatians, Paul has made this clear time and again. Slave to it. Not an heir of God through it. We were imprisoned by the law until to it. Not an heir of God through it. We were imprisoned by the law until the coming faith would be revealed. And then he concludes, so then the law was our pedagogos, like this imprisoning guard until Christ. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, and because you are sons, Galatians, you come to faith in Jesus, what happened? You're free. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and therefore what? You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir. God. That's what Paul's getting at. Paul has been making the point through Galatians that when Israel received the law without being made alive by new birth to obey it with a heart of faith, they became enslaved. They had no freedom of heart to obey. And thus they were locked up imprisoned under their own sin, under the law. Whether it says, I will worship the bell, or whether it grows into first century Pharisaic Judaism, we will do works of the law. It's the same imprisoning sin. It's the same sinful response of rebellion and self-reliance. That's what Paul is saying. Then in verse 25, Paul brings the allegory up to date. No, not today. Up to date when he's writing in the early 50s of the first century. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She... Hagar, Mount Sinai in Arabia, Jerusalem. For the present Jerusalem. For she, Jerusalem, is in slavery with her children. So the present Jerusalem is not part of the inheritance, is what Paul is saying. Is not part of the inheritance that's given to the children of promise. They are not part, even though they are on that side of the Jordan, Paul sees they're not really over the Jordan into the promised land. That's what, think about it. It's a good thing to do when you read the Bible. Why does the writer say this or that? Why did he say, in Arabia? He wants to make it clear. 
And then I'll bring you over into the promised land. And Paul says, present Jerusalem, what they represent in the first century, is the Sinai in a ring of unbelief. And Paul said, land, they are the present first century, is the Sinai in Arabia of unbelief. And they will not inherit the promised land. They are the people that will not go with Joshua over the river. The present Jerusalem, Paul's talking about, is the Judaism of unbelieving Israel and from which many have come to professing faith in Christ that in the book of Acts they're called within the church, the circumcision party. They're coming from Jerusalem. And Paul says they are still in slavery. Children of Hagar. Not alive to God. Paul is saying that the Jewish establishment is centered in Jerusalem in the first century. And it was in slavery. And it is shown by its prideful legalism of works of the law. Just like the self-reliance of Abraham through Hagar. What Paul says here is a direct attack on the Judaizers. Who are Jews coming from Jerusalem. And then verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. Shame had eyes to see and ears to hear like our Lord said by God's mercy. And believed. Like what happened to you, Galatians? Who have seen had eyes to see and ears to hear like our Lord said by God's mercy. And believed. Like what happened to you, Galatians? We are the child of the free woman. And he's already said this. Verse 29, chapter 3. If you are Christ, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And unlike Ishmael, but like Isaac, heirs according to the promise. So Paul contrasts the earthly Jerusalem there in Palestine in the first century with what he says is the Jerusalem above. And he says Sarah represents that city because she gave birth by reliance on God's promise. It was God's promise that brought about Isaac. Unlike according to the flesh of the Judaizers. According to the flesh of Hagar that brought about Ishmael. And therefore, spiritually speaking, I think what Paul is saying is that she's our mother. She's the mother of all who are born again of the miracle. Spiritual. New birth. And thus you belong to the Jerusalem 
above. Like Paul will later write to the Colossians, right? If then you have been raised with Christ, right now, not bodily, but physically, I mean spiritually, he says, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ who is above in God. So our life and our freedom flow down from God. The Jerusalem above. The true Jerusalem. Which makes Jew or Gentile True heirs. True Israel. And that's Paul's point. Verse 28. Done with the allegory. Boom. Now you, non-Jewish, Gentile, believers in Jesus, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. We, he's saying, who are justified, made right, forgiven of sins, been given Christ's rage, we are justified by Christ alone, through faith alone. We are the people of what God promised. We are people whose lives are not merely the product of human resources but of God's supernatural work in our hearts, raising us to new spiritual life. Because He mercifully gave us ears to hear the good news. He gave us eyes to see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we Galatians responded to the true gospel. We're products of the promise. He called us to faith. Gotta get why Paul is so angry when after preaching that truth and the Spirit falls and people are getting born again and churches are formed in these cities, then other professing Christians come in and say, well, that's good, but you're not quite done yet. You have to go on now and do X, Y, and Z because if you don't, you will not be saved. They miss the whole boat. This is why the present day watered down evangelical gospel with man-made altar calls is so dangerous. It has produced untold numbers of Ishmael's. And the Judaizers are all about that. Do what we say and we'll tell you you're in. 
And we say in different guise, if you'll say this prayer, we will judge you as you're on your way to heaven. Instead of just let the gospel speak, and let God move, and let them tell you. He'll produce the promise. I don't know where that came from, but it came. Now notice verse 27. Verse 27 here supports what he just said in verse 26. See the word for? So in 26 he says, in other words, Sarah is free. So we, Jew or Gentile, we're free, free, free in Christ. We're of the Jerusalem above. And then Paul says, actually, see that's what Isaiah 54 verse 1 says. That's what he does. So feel it. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written. It goes to Isaiah. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. I'm going to just try to be I'm going to try to be really short on this. That was written about 100 years before the Babylonian captivity and where Jerusalem was wiped out and left desolate. And so later down the road, you would watch Daniel do this stuff. He's looking at Bible, he's looking at the prophets, and down the road they would see this Word of God through Isaiah and say, you're desolate now, but something's coming. That seems to be the immediate point of the passage. Now, Paul sees another long-term point of the passage where he compares the Jerusalem in Palestine in the first century with the Jerusalem above. And he says to the Galatians, because they're being pestered. I mean, they're going, they can't sleep at night. These people keep saying, but we're not saved if we don't get circumcised. And if we don't stop eating bacon and ham sandwiches. And if we don't start doing the particular kinds of washings and festivals. Are we saved or not? They're really troubled. And Paul is saying, do you hear the text? Let me tell you something. That Jerusalem right now, they seem to be powerful. It's a center of Judaism. And now, and there's a big church there too. And out of that church, they don't have papers from the apostles and the leaders of the church. They're lying about that. But let me tell you something, Galatians. God's doing something. And this Jerusalem above will have far more spiritual children than they ever imagined that are there in Jerusalem today. And so he says to him, You brothers, like Isaac, you're children of the promise. And so Paul, he's made his point. Do you not listen to the law? Galatians, 
His point was made. The law teaches that those who, like Isaac, they are of the promise and they are free. He's saying as those persons, Jew or Gentile, that are born of the Holy Spirit, He's saying our new life is not like Ishmael's, which came from the work of self-sufficient man. But He's saying our life is the work of God in us as He has fulfilled His promise to make for Himself a people. Like what Ezekiel prophesied about. I'll put My Spirit within you. And those who are not My people, Gentiles, I will call My people. For Jeremiah, I will write My law on their heart. Paul is saying very clearly to them and to us, if you're born of the Spirit, if Christ is your Savior, you are free. Not in bondage, not a slave, but you are free to love God now. You are free to trust God's Word and His commandments. You are free to obey with a heart of faith because you're the true descendants who inherit the promise. And then he says in verse 29, But just as at that time in Genesis, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. That's how I know Paul means by promise, born of the Spirit. Born according to the Spirit, Isaac got persecuted by Ishmael then. So it also is now. You hear what he's saying? The Judaizers, these teachers are Ishmael's. They're pestering you. They're persecuting you. They're threatening you. But you're the true seed. Happened to Isaac. It's happening to you. And then in verse 30, Paul drives the stake through the Judaizers' heart and their doctrine. But what does the Scripture say in Genesis? It says this, Cast out the slave woman. And her son. For the slave, excuse me, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You Galatians, like Isaac, you will inherit the blessing of Abraham, not the Judaizer Ishmael types. Galatians, Ishmael's persecution and his threats did not prevail. But instead, Hagar and Ishmael were finally cast out 
and sent away according to Genesis 21.10. You guys get the implication? They, I think the Galatians clearly got it. Quit listening to these men. Kick them out. Get rid of them. Cast them away. And so he concludes. And so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ sets you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So, let me ask you, Sovereign Grace, are you free? Has Christ set you free? Now, within the church world, I could hear a response in my head. It goes something like this. I'm free in Christ. I'm so free that I habitually disregard God. Yes, I'm free. I disregard God's commandments over me. Actually, I am so free that I live according to the flesh. Those who say that with their lives, their lifestyles, they are in slavery. They are like Ishmael. They will not inherit. They are of the flesh. And we know what Paul goes on to say a few sentences down in Galatians. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and Things like these. I warn you, Galatians, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news of the gospel to you, believer, is that you've been born again. And therefore, you are free. To cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. You're not like the Hagar debacle of the flesh. You are not enslaved to your flesh. 
You are not enslaved to self-sufficiency. You are not to be enslaved to religious legalism. You're free. We put it all together in this book of Galatians. You're free because Christ has already justified you. You have already been reconciled to God. And God reconciled to you a sinner. And therefore, freedom is this. None of your life now, none of your living, none of your obedience, none of your Bible reading, your praying, your church going, your evangelism, your tithing, your staying away from sexual immorality, your loving others, all these other things that free people do, none of that is ever done in order to get justified. You are free. But it's all a response of the faith that justified you. It's all a response of the faith that is the evidence that you have been, like Isaac, born according to the Spirit. And so let me just say to you, never, ever be patient with controlling, slave-making legalists in the guise of Christianity. Whether it comes to books, internet, personalities, culture, local churches. Hear Paul, and do not be subject again to a yoke a slavery that undoes the truth of the Gospel. But instead, go on living in the freedom for which Christ sets you Got to get it. If you're a believer, you are free to love God. You're free to love His commandments. You are free to bank all of your hope for eternal life on His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, live in the freedom of laying down your life for the glory of God in overflowing by the Spirit through loving other people. Father, thank You that You did not spare Your own Son. You, in the fullness of time, sent Him, gave Him up on a bloody cross for us and for our salvation. And for us, who are of the promise, may we go away here encouraged that knowing that to be true, it is impossible that by Jesus You will not supply everything we need to make it to that celestial city. To make it the resurrection of the just. For it is in Christ and in His work alone we who are free trust.
Amen.